The Bob Murphy Show, episode 300. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show before I jump into the particulars of this episode, let me just explain what happened. So you may have noticed on episode 299 when I was going solo, taking on three talking points of MMT, uh, the sound quality was not up to snuff. And then you also may notice in this episode that you're about to listen to uh, my side for sure and possibly David's also might not be great audio. So it's not that everything has just fallen apart. It's that I recorded episodes 299 and 300 when I was down in Florida at my parents for Thanksgiving. And I was using a separate mic setup, and it, it was my fault. I had just had the input turned up too hot. And so it, when I tested it, you know, just said testing one, two, check, check, check. And then I played it back. It was fine. But apparently when I really got into the MMT talking points, I got worked up and, uh, several points during that discussion, I got into the red zone. And so I'm sure you heard that. So long story short, please tolerate if, if this episode also is not up to the usual quality audio standards of the Bob Murphy show, we will be back on track next. But I didn't want to not use this material because I really thought this was a good conversation that I had with David Gornowski. So who's he, you might ask? David Gronowski is the host of the radio show, A Neighbor's Choice, a show that looks at politics, science, and culture through the lens of Jesus' personhood revolution. On his radio show and also on his online exclusive podcast and film series, Things Hidden, David has interviewed personalities like Ron Paul and Jordan Peterson. And he's also written multiple essays and columns promoting Jesus' nonviolent ethos and personhood revolution for publications such as Daily Caller, Town Hall, American Conservative, and Fee. And David currently lives in Central Florida. So what we talked about specifically in this episode is uh, David had recently had a World Net Daily column called The Cross's Shadow in the Holy Land, Violence, Vengeance, and Victimhood. Some nice alliteration there. And the subtitle is uh, David Gornowski Urges Christians to Repudiate, repudiate Collateral Damage as a Means of Revenge. Okay, so... Uh, if you don't know, David is very big on the work of uh, Rene Girard and basically using you know the scapegoating analysis, but it's a lot deeper than if you're just like, oh yeah, every once in a while a society will you know blame some group of people for all their problems. Yeah, I know it's scapegoating. It, it's it's a lot more intense than that. So anyway, that's you're going to see that all coming uh, through in this discussion. So without further ado, here is my conversation with David Gornowski. David, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. It's great to be back. I'm so glad to talk to you. Well, 
I, you had reached out to me and said you wanted to explain a Girardian take on the Israel-Hamas-Palestinian yeah. conflict. So take it away. How do you want to frame this for the listeners? I just think that it's important for people to understand that Jesus's uh, predictions of history are coming to pass and, and not in the way that the uh, typical Christian reads into prophecies and in the, in the kind of tabloid sense, but in an actual understanding of perception, the human perception of reality and, and how, how the rules of, the, of uh, culture are, are predicated based on things that Jesus unleashed in history. So this is actually the good stuff of Christianity, not the, oh, this is the seventh moon cycle that will, you know, I don't know, I don't want to make fun if that's some Christians are interested in that kind of thing, but I don't think that's an accurate biblical reading to to cherry pick literal meanings out of Revelation and then everything else about Revelations is symbolic. You know, that's kind of weird mm. when they have like scorpions with the face of a bear and that's supposed to be a metaphor. But then like when it says the moon is darkened and the stars are crashing, oh, that's literally going to happen. Okay, well, by what standard are you determining that? You know, if you're going to cherry pick, uh, you know, this is a literal uh, phenomenon of the future that Jesus is predicting and and then these are not. These are symbolic scorpions with the face of a bear. It becomes very bizarre. But not to get into eschatology, but I do think it's important to frame what we see here today with the Bible as our guide and not be ashamed of the gospel. You know, it's, it's very easy. I know this is kind of like preaching to the choir to you, Bob, because you're. I think you're. A, you call yourself a pacifist, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're a pacifist. Why do you? Where, where do you ground your pacifism? And is it is it from? Do you delineate your um, libertarian philosophy like in a separate category from your Christian worldview, or do you see it as coming from the same source? A uh, good question. So I think um, one can. It makes sense to be a libertarian, even if you didn't rely on you know a Christian worldview. Uh, just like, you know, I can believe in geometry without knowing the gospel, but I, you know, think, you know, why, why is, why is the, why is reality rational and that sort of thing? I would ultimately, you know, for the most comprehensive explanation of why that should be the case, I would say, oh, because there's a rational God that created everything. So similarly, um, somebody who's an agnostic or an atheist or, you know, some believer who's not a Christian who believes in God, uh, I think they could reach you know, believe in the the non-aggression principle as a good guide and so forth as, as a, a list of necessary conditions, but not sufficient for uh, morality and so forth. Um, so that that's where I would come on that. And then I think obviously the non-aggression principle and everything that flows from it is all consistent with the gospel uh, message. But I, you know, f- for me, the, you know, the gospel is deeper. Also, I should say, I my pacifism too, which obviously is more uh, stringent than mere non-aggression initiation. Uh, I also, you know, that's flowing from, you know, me pondering and thinking through the Sermon on the Mountain and so forth. But I'm not claiming, oh, to be a good Christian, you have to be a pacifist. I'm just saying my pacifism itself does come from me thinking, okay, how am I going to try to live my life to, you know, at least try to attain the, the standard that Jesus set for us? Yeah. Yeah, I don't call myself a pacifist because I do leave some room for some type of self-defense to some degree, and maybe you do too. But I, um, I think it's important to, you know, 
it, 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 we can't continue to compartmentalize religion from politics and philosophy. Can't, you know, we're, we're running out of time. And what I mean by that is there's a crisis of meaning in the West, right? We don't know what our gender is. We don't know what reality is. We don't know what to believe about the world. The media has got, you know, we're realizing how much of it is a lie and lies upon lies. And it's just really, you know, disrupting people's sense of everything, of reality, you know? And, and if you don't, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece that I sent to a, a, a a prominent conservative site, and I was using an anthropological analysis, just like I'm doing, I want to do today with you, where I wasn't really invoking the metaphysical claims of of, of Christianity. I'm just trying to talk about the effects of Christianity in in our history and in our world and how we perceive things. And so that doesn't, again, that doesn't surmise that you have to believe in the metaphysical claims, right? To to, to enter into this dialogue, it's just looking at the effects of Christianity. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, we don't, we don't, we don't publish religious stuff. We don't want to have it. If it's something to do with religion, like it's an event in, in, about the Pope or something, we'll write an article about it, but we don't want to run things about religion. And I'm thinking, dude, religion is synonymous with culture. And the more we pretend otherwise, because we're borrowing enlightenment kind of bifurcations of society, I think we're going to be in a, a lot of trouble because we're not, we're going to be ill-equipped to provide an, uh, an answer for the way things are in a way that can actually touch with reality. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do with something as, you know, you look at the Israel-Palestine conflict and it's dizzying all the propaganda, right? You can't, I'm sure you've seen on Twitter, you know, you, you don't know which video is something that happened from 10 years ago or which video of a dead child is happening now. And, you know, it's sick. It's like hell, you know, you're like, is this a dead child from 10 years ago or five years ago? Or is this a dead child from Yemen? Or, you know, they're all saying it's, they don't really, you know, these people that share video clips, they're not, you're not really citing, you know, where they're coming from. So you're just inundated with all this horrific propaganda. And it'll, yeah, it'll mess you up. Yeah, just to just interject here, David, just to give you just something literally I was posting about an, an hour ago. And this is a trivial little example, but it just illustrates what you're talking about. So in case people don't know the context or if David, you have any. So Susan Sarandon just got in trouble and got uh, like her, I guess her talent agency or somebody stopped representing her. And the what happened, if you go and watch it, so she went to some Palestinian rally and gave some remarks, you know, publicly with them, you know, she's up on a, on a platform with a mic and she said something like, um, we, the, uh, Jews in America right now are finally getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim, uh, living in fear. Uh, and, but we, we stand, you know, I stand with with my Jewish friends and we're so glad you're some of, you know, you're here with us. Like she's talking to the Jewish people who showed up to the rally to support Palestine and then the crowds mm. chant, you know, clapping and stuff like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's saying, so, you know, we not want to be clear. It's not all uh, Jewish people that that we disagree with on this issue. But again, it's important. Da, da, da. Okay, so that's what happened. And then, and so because of those remarks, so specifically, it was, of course, you know, so like, like Fox News and people like that were reporting. Susan Sarandon says, quote, Jews uh, get a taste of their own medicine or something like that. But then, yeah. like the pro-Palestinian side was reporting, Susan Sarandon uh, dropped from her agency because she supported Palestine. So both of those yeah. headlines were not complete lies, but they were both misleading. 
that, right. you know, no, what she said, I can understand if you just heard that one quote, the Jews are getting a taste of their own medicine. You would think that sounds very anti-Semitic. That's more than just saying, I support the people in Palestine. But on the other right. hand, if you listen to the context of what she said, she was not at all saying, I'm glad this is happening to them. So anyway, right. I'm just saying it just showed how you can't you can't do anything. You got to go like re see the original and decide for yourself that both sides frame it. And it's just it's annoying. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of see, I think that, you know, even though libertarianism and these philosophical concepts like non-aggression, yes, you can derive them without being a religious Christian, but these are effects of Christianity's impact in history. You know, if we dropped you back into uh, ancient Egypt or something, you wouldn't have the position of like some kind of objective non-aggression principle outside of the gods or, you know what I mean? Like you, you would have to, mm. you would just be, you know, either a faithful Egyptian to the creeds or beliefs of your world, or you would be a dissident. And there wasn't really any room for some kind of like third-party neutral space, right? The secular is something that Christianity birthed, this idea of have, having a space where people could like work out ideas and some kind of abstract separation from religion is something that Christianity itself gave us to the, gave to the world. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I think it's important to, to stay true to our Christian vocation in this regard. And when I say it's Christian again, I'm meaning the kind of the cultural effect of Christianity and the, uh, the the lens that Christianity gives us, whether we want to buy into the metaphysical claims of Christianity or not, we're working from it when we pursue something like true history. For example, true history is this idea of, is can we give an honest accounting of the facts of a conflict, like a blood feud, and tell the truth about the victims on both sides? Like that's a position that only, that, that, that's a Christian vocation, meaning that's a Christian aspiration to history that we're, we're in danger of losing if we don't realize why we do what we do. You know, Christians are not to join a side about, uh, in, in, in a blood feud. Christians are not called to join a side in uh, a, a violent reciprocal uh, act of, of, of conflict. We are to do the best we can to give an accurate depiction, even if it hurts our side, so to speak, even if it means, well, actually, yeah, the church did this, or this church did that, that I'm a part of, or yes. You know what I mean? We, we, that's mm. what the truth is from a Christian vocation standpoint, is that it's this pursuit of, of the objective reality, regardless of whether it legitimizes your team's interest or not. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So um, that, that, that's important. Ahead. The first step is like mm -hmm. Christianity gives us true history, and then and then also Christianity gives us a painting of what the future will look like. So it gives us both a future, it gives us both a history and future. And the future, Jesus talks about that the meek shall inherit the earth. So he's making a claim about the future of of the planet Earth, right? And um, and so I'm, I I think just to kind of start off, why everything is so saturated in the play box that Jesus started in history is to realize that, you know, when Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth, and he talks about children being a close picture of God, uh, that wasn't the reality that he was in at the time. You know, there was Roman Empire was doing things like exposure to children where they'd leave them on the side of the road to die if they were uh, inconvenient. That was a common practice, you know. Uh, 
that's that's a worldview that's in clashing with the worldview of 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 his time around the world pretty much you know there, there was a murament still going on where you'd bury a victim alive sometimes a child sometimes your firstborn in the walls of a new city you were building and that was considered like the ribbon cutting ceremony for politics around the world as horrific as that is that's what people were dealing with when Jesus said you know that such is the kingdom of these and he said the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, 2,000 years later, you have folks um, on both sides of this Palestinian versus Israel conflict who are using the videos and photos of slain children as their means of justifying their side's interests in the conflict, meaning that we are well on our way to the meek inheriting the earth. There's nothing more powerful than the image of a child being harmed by your opponent to gain currency with the world's favor. Does that make sense? Okay. The world so is finding me- children to be sacred more than ever before. And it's right. because I, of the I cross of yes. Christ. Yeah. Okay. okay. So let me just repeat it. Cause again, that's a very powerful point. I want to make sure people aren't. So, so beyond you merely, you know, so on the one hand you're saying, you know, uh, a lot of, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you are okay with this, David, that there's a lot of, American Christians, especially evangelicals, who are saying, oh, yeah, clearly a reading of the Bible, we got to stand with Israel, and the U.S. stands with Israel, and they got to do it. Yeah, they have a right to exist and to defend themselves. You know, God loved it. Jacob and hated Esau, and, you know, this is what the right thing for, and you're rejecting that particular interpretation, but you're, what you're saying, the, the conflict over there does illustrate something about Christianity, namely that the elevation that both sides are trying to show, oh, since our vulnerable people got killed or maimed or what have you by the other side, that means we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Whereas in, you know, ancient times that would have just been a sign of, of weakness or something. You know what I mean? If somebody said, Hey, yeah, these conquerors are slaughtering our babies. They'd be like, yeah, what's your point? Yeah. That means you guys are inferior. They, if you were, if you were showing how many of your kids and, and innocents were being killed by your opponent, that would be a sign that you were, uh, disfavored by the gods that fate had looked poorly on you, you know, that you're not, you're not, uh, you deserve what you're getting, right? But now to show the slain, to show that, you know, the weak among you are being harmed by your opponents is the ultimate currency for political power in the world. We saw that with the refugee crisis. Remember the picture of the, of the drowned little boy on the beach? I think where was it France or something or Germany where was that at I don't know but it was like a symbolic video uh, image they put on Time magazine of the little Syrian refugee child who was dead on the beach and that was like the symbol for the refugee crisis at this time right because it was like it was like you know anybody who wants to stand on the side of this poor child as a sacrifice as a victim you know that's the place you want to be you want to be in in proximity to that child's interests Right. Yeah, and it's a, another example of this. Just so people don't think you're strawmanning things. That um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, David. And I almost wonder if it's like a troll account. But there's like a a Hellenist, like I think that's the actual name of the on Twitter. And you know, the guy whoever runs it will periodically post memes showing like these are the you know the the Greek or the Roman gods and like showing you know symbols of strength and whatever. And here's the 
the Christian God, and it shows Jesus on a cross, you know, looking defeated. And you know, so the the point being, you know, the, the, don't don't follow some puny God who gets slaughtered by his enemies. Follow a strong God. Like what? That's the whole point of you know. And again, I almost suspect it's a troll account, just because of course Christians pass those those memes around them and and dunk on them. But in any event, that that is the the message that comes through. It's it's certainly not like you say that in the if you read the ancient literature that the the meek and the and the the downtrodden are are held up as uh, sacred people to be uh, respected. Yeah, and that's a, it's that's lost on us because Christian Christian perception of justice of individuals of of violence of differences hierarchy all of those things are shaped by Christianity's effect of the West you know its impact on the West and where it's like swimming in the water right this is a metaphor people use a lot but it helps is that the Christianity is the water of our fishbowl. You know, we're swimming around in it. And you can be uh, protesting that you're an atheist or agnostic, but that's not really escaping the water of the fishbowl that you're in. You're still swimming in a culture haunted by the cross. By haunted, I just mean that it's permeating everything, uh, even in our rebellion against its requirements and precisely it haunts us the more we try to resist it actually infects our sensibilities and our perception of things even more so but but it whether you are religious or not if you're in the west and you're shaped by the values of of western society then you are affected by the cross and its impact jesus's impact in history and that includes the way in which People engage in war propaganda. They're always, all the wars that America has gone forth and pursued have always been done with propaganda to demonstrate that what we are doing is liberating the angels, the victims, the, the, the weak among us around the world, whether it's babies and in incubators in the Iraq War one, or, you know, democracy and, and things like that with carefully staged video propaganda for Iraq War II or giving people women's rights in Afghanistan or, uh, you know, the Assad gas attacks on kids right when we were saying we were going to leave them alone. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Libya, you know, oh, he's harming people. Uh, he's harming the little ones. He's harming the women or whatever. And they did do some of these things, but they also, you know, they, you, they, they play those parts up to mask what is really just might makes right, right? You have to, and so the more we, Christianity's effects on our society are heightened by our media technology advancements. And the more we get social media and HD live streaming capabilities on phones around the world and so forth, we are able to affect uh, we're able to kind of accelerate, whether we intend to or not, the effects of the gospel haunting our conscience about the way we treat the least of these. And that's something that states are going to have a harder and harder time keeping pace with because they basically, uh, it's like Satan, you know, when Jesus talks about Satan casting out Satan and this idea that this is how he maintains his kingdom. This is, you can look at a spiritual side of it, but 
again, in keeping with the cultural anthropological uh, framework I'm, I'm talking about these things in, what he's talking about is that, you know, Satan, you know, has this, there's this structure of civilization in which you find a scapegoat to, ex- to expel, to stop the chaos of the, uh, you know, the original kind of satanic chaos that's been stewing or brewing in your society. But that system of maintaining order, uh, creating a violent scapegoat expulsion to kind of blame or, you know, whether it's an enemy other or another, another nation nearby that's, you know, you rally the people in unity against or whatever, that kind of a program for keeping society going is falling apart rapidly. And it has to maintain itself by donning the clothing of, of victims. And but like I say, the way I say it is Satan has to paint himself more and more like a slain lamb to keep his gig going. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing this happen at an accelerated rate because the, you know, the propaganda effect doesn't create unanimity anymore because people see through it. People see through uh, propaganda presenting one side's perspective and they see through their own side perspective somewhat more so than they ever have before. And so therefore it doesn't create the kind of unanimity that one wants to have to make a decisive case as to why you should be allowed to vanquish your enemies. And that's important to keep that in mind when you see what's happening with Israel and Palestine is that both sides are operating under rules of engagement that Christianity inaugurated in history, which is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, mm-hmm. and that the meek shall inherit the earth. So they can't claim, well, you know what? We're beating these guys because we are superior to them. We are just superior to them. Their dogs were not. They can't present that to the public. Both sides can't do that. Right. And they can't present, well, we're beating them because our religion is favored by God and their religion is satanic. We can't, they can't do that. That's old school rhetoric. You can't do that anymore. 2,000 years after Christ, we're at a point where you have to say, well, look, we are being victimized. We are being slain. We are being brought to slaughter. And look, they're killing the least of these among us. Look at our children that we present. Look at our, the women, the grandmothers. And that's how they compete with who's going to get the world's favor. Who's going to get the, you know, the world's legitimacy or, you know, you know, support the most to, to advance their strikes and revenge against their opponents. So Christianity doesn't end our appetite for violence immediately. It just get, it starts to undermine the way in which we use symbols and imagery and events to, to create these myths that justify our attempts to use violence. It doesn't, it wants us, you know, Jesus wants us, like you know, to stop uh, using violence to solve violence or, you know, using sacrifice to, to mediate mercy. He wants us to stop that, but he doesn't, he doesn't brainwash us with some kind of ideological program to, like, force it. He wants humanity to work this out, and he would rather us work it out faster rather than the way we're doing it. But Nevertheless, it is happening, you know, that, that there's a, uh, you can see a trajectory since Christ's arrival 
in terms of how acutely sensitive we are to victims and the way we treat prisoners and the way we treat people who are punished for capital crimes and things like that. Yeah, let me read here, David, from your uh, – you had sent me a World Net Daily article that you wrote on this. Um, so let me just read a paragraph, and then I'll have you elaborate. You say, rather than choosing a side or arming and manipulating both sides, as Americans have done for far too long, Christians must take the leadership position to which their role model calls them and demand a cessation of all killing and retributive violence. Christians must not be ashamed of the gospel and its penetrating solidarity with all victims of war – Perpetrators of terrorism must be brought to justice, but serious Christians cannot make excuses for violent overreach that kills innocent lives. And so, so on that, David, just to need to pay you back, and then I'm, you know, I'll have you respond. It it has been surprising to me how many, you know, self-identified Christians are openly mocking calls for a ceasefire, as if that's just you know something only children would do in a situation like this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, you've got to, you've got again, you've got to separate two things here: the effects of what Jesus is doing on history. There are objective changes to how things are going, and then you have the way in which professed Christians talk and act and think, and we are a part of that process. But often, of course, as you just demonstrated, we are not doing the right thing in these moments, but. Jesus is changing culture through history, whether his, you know, so-called Christians, you know, get it right or not. You know what I mean? Like history's moving along the path that he predicted in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's happening. It's not happening tomorrow, It's but it's a process of happening. Everything you see around you is humanity slowly as a species, waking up to the knowledge of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Lord is the slain lamb, as Revelation talks about. And the slain lamb, since the foundation of the world, is the primordial victim of all human societies. I don't want to go too far into scapegoat mechanism discussion, but, you know, that's, you know, what Gerard calls the founding principle of human culture in its attempt to create its own form of, of kind of like uh, catharsis and unity based on the exclusion or killing of a, of a single victim. But Jesus came to unmask that, unveil that, and not to, you know, every human project seeks to try to like impose some kind of ideological brainwashing project or something uh, to get its way. But Jesus doesn't do that. He respects humanity's, he, he understands humans and the way in which we operate. He gives us that radical free will to do what we need to do to uh, work out our salvation in that sense, the salvation of the world from our own violence is what we're really dealing with. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the, the, you have to understand that, that the gospel is like a technology, right? And within that, you also have what Jesus calls the called out ones. And we call that church, right? Ecclesia. But that technology is going to have an effect in shaping the world, whether his church is acting right in certain situations or not. And that's something that I think is important to realize, is that there were people, of course, who would participate in lynching a black person, right, you know, on 1920s or whatever, and then go to church on Sunday morning. 
Mm-hmm. So it's easy for an atheist or somebody to say, oh, that's an example that invalidates your claim, right? But the forces that Jesus unleashed that, that would defend the scapegoat was affecting the conscience of the society, Christians and non, and was moving and shaping their reaction and revulsion towards this uh, kind of return to primitive ritual sacrifice on the part of these lynch mobs that ended up eliminating its practice, sure, uh, in, in America, right? And, and it was not being eliminated at the same rate in, in cultures in 1920s in Indonesia or, uh, you know, other places around the world that were not as impacted by the gospel relative to the way in which the West was. And so uh, this is an effect the gospel is like a technological effect that makes human beings a little bit more self-reflective about what their desires are motivated by and what their uh, conscience should tolerate in participating in collective violence. It uh, Jesus shows you this technology in the story of the woman accused of adultery, in which you know he gets them to ask a question, you know, it says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He doesn't tell them, do not do that, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of like what we do on Twitter when we try to tell people to stop wars. We, our tendency mm-hmm. is to say something like, hey, stop this war, right? This is wrong. Well, Jesus is a little bit smarter than we are about this. So we're a lot smarter, right? He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So he affirms, he doesn't resist their desire. That would make them double down on their attempts to have their righteous indignation poured out on this woman accused of adultery. He doesn't, he doesn't resist it, say, stop it. Don't you dare do that. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. He says, let he who, who is without sin cast the first stone. I mean, he's in some level going along with it. Okay, go along with it, but, but start with this way. And so when you, when you, when you say it that way, it's like an Aikido move. You know, you're not resisting it overtly. You're in a, a kind of allowing its violent aggression to fall on its own face because once he puts that little framing into it, uh, they start to think, well, who is the one who is without sin? Is it me or is it you, Bob? Or is it you, uh, Bill? I don't know. You're a pretty rotten guy. I saw you last night at the bar, right? Mm-hmm. These things like that. You start to say, well, who is the real guy that's going to start throwing this rocks? I don't want to. And all of a sudden, now you're taking individual responsibility for the stone that's in your hand rather than just being like a caught up in the stupor of the crowd and hiding in the anonymity of the crowd and throwing your stone among 50, 50 other rocks. Well, you can throw 50 stones at the same time. It kind of reduces the moral responsibility of the violence being done for each person. They can all kind of say, well, I don't think my stone even hit that girl. I think it was yours. I don't, who knows? You know, we all threw it in the air and I think mine just fell on the ground next to her. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't really have to even think about it like that. You're just like, you know, it's not even a part of your agency. You're just doing some kind of collective act of purity or ritual, uh, ritual righteousness. Uh, and he, what, he breaks that by getting them to think of their individual responsibility with what they're doing. What's interesting about that day, and I know that this is like compatible with what you're saying, but not the exact same point. But it just it's reminding me that what's what I'm finding interesting in these discussions, and yeah, it's mostly on Twitter. That you know, not not a great place to go to elevate your uh, opinion of humanity, but. Uh, 
you know, people, specifically with this issue of so-called collateral damage, and people are making this huge, people who are defending the IDF's response, uh, you know, they're making this very important in their minds distinction between deliberately targeting civilians versus doing things that you know full well are going to kill a lot more civilians, but hey, that's not what the goal of our plan was. It was just an unfortunate byproduct, and I think that's a huge, whereas they wouldn't do that, you know, if there were, if some guys robbed a bank in, in, Dallas, Texas, and they were driving away and the police and chasing them down, ran over a bunch of women crossing the street with baby strollers. And the police just said, well, hey, you know, these bank robbers were using the pedestrians as human shields. You can't really blame us. It's the bank robbers. fault." nobody would accept that. They would say, what are you doing? You can't be running over women and baby strollers when you're chasing down bank robbers. That's completely unacceptable. And so there is this image, you know, this idea that because what Israel is doing, and I'm even saying it by calling it Israel, because the officials in charge and giving orders and then certain particular men and women in the Israeli you know, forces are carrying out those orders and resulting in mass, you know, like, like a situation I just said times a thousand, it turns into, in their minds, something different. Like, well, no, that's, see, this is war. Yeah, yeah, what you're talking about there, Bob, is individual crime fighting. And then, then yeah, the police can't kill innocent people when they're trying to yeah. catch specific criminals. But this is just mass war, and so it's different. And you know, I don't know if that's relevant to what you're saying. Yeah, it is. Uh, this is the kind of questions we have to think about if we're Christians, and we should be modeling this for the public. And uh, whether non-Christians lead the way or what, I think it's the Christians that should lead the way because we present, we 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 are we are claiming to imitate a person who gives us the full picture about how to deal with these things. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. This is what it looks like. You have to be able to process what's going on. And uh, you're using your reason to do that. Um, you, you, I mean, you, they say that, you know, only the Palestinians use um, human shields. But a friend of mine, Daryl Cooper, a Martyr Made podcast, he pointed out, well, doesn't Tel Aviv house the uh, Ministry of Defense for Israel, right? You know, though they put though they put their Ministry of Defense, their military operations right in the middle of Tel Aviv, that's kind of uh, using them as human shields, is it not? Um, and, of course, now, you know, you, this idea that, you know, you bomb a refugee camp like they did because there was somebody there that they didn't want. Well, you know, you're, that's a... That's a premeditated act. You said, "Okay, there's a refugee. There's there's a refugee camp here. There's kids and women and stuff. Go ahead and drop this. There's a guy in there we don't like. That's you're using. I mean, you're killing uh, innocents in the same way of you know uh, that would be the way you were describing with uh, going on the road to a bank robber and running over somebody because they're you don't have time to slow down for a second or move." So yeah, I mean, this is what this is the the logic of violence is being affected by our Christ haunted consciences, and we need to be able to be not ashamed of that. So many people don't want to say something, and they tiptoe around this topic because they're afraid that they'll be canceled by one or the other respective coalitions. Right? You know, there's some people that say, "I don't want to speak out." Uh, this side because that that team will come after me and cancel this deal or cancel that deal or, and then in the other sides, the other some people say no. I'm afraid this side will get me if I don't, you know. Like there's some people that want to deny the victims 
of uh, Hamas, that the people that Hamas tortured and killed, and you know, and the ones they kidnapped and so forth, and they don't want to speak out about it because they're in social justice circles or whatever, and that's not favorable to present a objective accounting of victims on both sides. And that's what that's what a Christian's calling is, though, right? A Christian's calling is to ruin the uh, suspension of disbelief effect. You know, like you're watching a movie. Christians really have a bad, uncomfortable calling in these moments because we're the ones that turn on the lights during the movie and say, hey, wait a second, you know, this is not true. You know, there's, there's another side to this. You know, uh, we can't just pin all this on Scar from Lion King. You know, there's some real sins that uh, Simba and Mufasa have done for years that we need to talk. You know, you, that's that's what the Christian does. Mm-hmm. The Christian is the one that says, wait a second. We cannot create meaning based on this kind of like blindness towards our own side's propensity for violence and lies and aggression. Uh, we, we don't have time to be swept up in the passions of these feuds, these mimetic feuds, these reciprocal acts of endless aggression that we see happening like in this conflict, we don't have time to play games like that. We don't have time to squint our eyes and avert our eyes when we see dead bodies of kids uh, that are inconvenient. Christians must boldly look at the facts, and that includes the carnage, unfortunately, and say, you know what, this just can't continue. And, uh, you know, all those folks that go to like John Hagee's uh, you know, rallies and so forth. You know, these are, I mean, this is, this is the night to stand with Israel and things he does like that. You know, how many of them would, if they were seeing a dead Palestinian child right in front of their face in the middle of that surface, how could they handle that, right? I mean, that would snap out their effect. Their zeal would be lost, right? Because we, you know, some of the, you know, all these people are just grandmothers and stuff. Can you imagine these little, Grandmothers at these John Hagee rallies, and they are presented with, you know, these uh, little children that have been killed. They bring them up on stage. I mean, that would ruin the effect, would ruin the zeal. Because and the same thing for the other side, right? It's these these rallies that are, yeah, let's go, you know, wipe out these people and kill them all. On the well, other side, you know, if they yeah. were to see the victims presented before them. Or their ch- or their family members coming out and, and showing pictures and saying, "Hey, look, this is what my uh, daughter or so forth looked like. This is this is what their story was. Here's videos of them growing up, and now they're dead. You know that would ruin the the the, the violent zeal on that side. And the Christian is the one who presents that side, those that perspective of the hidden victims, no matter who is doing the killing." And that's, yeah. that's the Christian vocation to history. And that's what the Christian vocation of history is going to create a better future, right? Future, the future will be better when Christians start doing this more intentionally, more boldly. That's what Romans is talking about when Paul says in Romans chapter one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel to present, to proclaim the truth to the Jew first and the Gentile. Uh, that has to be the calling of the Christian, no matter what. And just to go along with what you're saying, that like that, I like that analogy. It's funny <laughs> when you said that about the Lion King. I was like, yeah, actually, come to think of it, who made Mufasa king? I'm not sure I agree with the uh, you know the tenets of that monarchy, but uh, it's 
was a point that I've been making a bit and I kind of even backed off just because, and, and maybe, and actually not maybe for sure in light of you going through this with me here, I've, I've got renewed vigor that I'm going to go in and keep making true statements, <laughs> even though I know it's going to bother everybody. Um, but it's what I've noticed is people will say like there was video going around, I don't know, about three weeks ago. It was some U.S., I think it was a high school, and some girl was going around and she was like leading a procession of other students saying, you know, chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. And so pro-Israel people were sharing that video and saying like savages and monsters and, you know, look at look at the state of our school. And can you imagine if you were a Jewish person at this school? And so I responded to one such person and I said, I understand why you're saying that, but prima facie it looks like you're saying Jewish people are very uncomfortable when people say Palestinians should be free. And so, of course, I just got, you know, I got a few hearts and then I was a wave of people, you know, saying, no, no, what they're calling for is genocide. And I said, well, then why aren't they using those words? If the girl was marching around a high school saying, let's go into Israel and murder all the Jewish people, nobody would be following her around. No, what the students were following around was chance of, Palestinians must be free. And likewise, there was a video going around of some girl getting up and saying, you know, oh, on, on uh, October 6th, do you remember the, the images you saw of the brave uh, Palestinian fighters taking, you know, smashing the barricades of oppression and, and seizing uh, Israeli tanks that had been used? And she was lauding all things that were heroic. And then pro-Israel people were sharing that and saying, oh, look at this disgusting person uh, celebrating the rape of Israeli women. And I just pointed out, like I said, no, she wasn't. If she had been up there saying, do you remember the images of women being raped? Nobody would have been applauding. That's not what she said. So, so you're right there. I mean, the, the pro Israel people, I understand what their point was that the other side was whitewashing all the horrible things that happened on October 6th. But my point was, I think it's consistent with what you're saying is they were both presenting sanitized images and no, the right. pro Palestinian people are not openly saying Yes, we are for the raping of women because if they did right. say that, their support would dwindle. So they're pretending that that wasn't part of it. Just like the pro-Israel people are not openly saying, "Oh yeah, I just love seeing dead Hamas babies," or sorry, dead Palestinian babies. I love it. They're not saying that because it's like, "Oh, that's not really what I'm supporting." It's just kind of an unavoidable thing. So they're both yeah. trying to pretend that the bad things, quote their side's doing, aren't happening. Right. Yeah, it is. And then you look at the other facts of the history, you know. Um, I presented in my article that you're talking about with World Net Daily and Anti-War picked it up and some others about Israel and Palestine, that there's a long history of, you know, uh, Israel's government funding Hamas. And uh, to me, uh, it raises the question, okay, first of all, why, again, go back to the Christian framework, because it helps you understand why would you fund the most vicious elements of your opponents? You know, they've since the seventies. There's, I mean, you can look it up. There's a yeah, lot of different. Yeah, Dave, Israeli do you mind if I just read the quotes? Outlets. Let me let me just quickly read the two quotes you have, because for people who don't know specifically what you mean, this is just shocking. I can't believe this isn't a bigger part of the conversation, or that the pro-Israel people aren't disputing these quotes, which I haven't seen. So I haven't seen anyone challenge the authenticity of these quotes. So you've got one here. Uh, in a 2019 article, Haaretz quotes Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying in a speech to his party, quote, 
Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. And then Scott Horton reported uh, that Israel's finance minister, Smoutrick, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, said uh, that the Palestinian Authority is, quote, a liability in Hamas is an asset on the international playing field in this game of delegitimization. So the point being, they thought a Palestinian state would be antithetical to Israel's interests. The world could respect the Palestinian Authority as legitimate, you know, state partner or whatever to be uh, negotiating with Israel, whereas they knew nobody's going to take Hamas seriously if Hamas is kind of the people in charge over there then there's no way they're going to get a second, you know, a two-state solution. So that's why we are going to support Hamas. And so when you wonder, like, oh, the Palestinians are evil because they voted for them, okay, well, then Netanyahu openly supported them too. So I guess he's responsible right. for October 6th. Right. And and, uh, and so what it makes you think about is like, okay, wait a second. If they're, and they've been, it's not just Netanyahu, though. He's been funding them, but they've been funded and preferred is going back as late as the late, uh, as early as the 1970s. And there's documentation. I think I linked to a lot of those stories in my article at World Net Daily. Maybe you can link to it in the footnotes, but. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll link to this folks if you want to read it. But that's, but that's the point is that like, you know, this has been going on for some time. So the question is like when half of the population of Gaza is like under the age of 18, how does those do those Gazan citizens just just take the half that are under eighteen? That's a million or something. So a million people who are under the age of eighteen, they have more moral responsibility for Hamas being in power than Netanyahu. Give me a break. Give me a break. See, that's what a Christian is supposed to be able to say. We should say these things with courage and confidence. Not afraid of book deals. Not afraid of censorship. Not afraid of talent agencies dropping you. Who gives a damn? This is what it means to be a Christian, right? We're the people who advance the truth. And we call it with boldness, not to hurt anybody, but to stop the killing for everybody. Give me a break. You tell me a million Gazan, 18-year-olds and under are more responsible morally for Hamas doing having their power and their weapons than Netanyahu? So, so how do they have any moral authority to kill those kids because of uh, the crimes that Hamas has done when Hamas was put into power by America, by Israel, by Qatar. Qatar gets, gives them a lot of money. And who's giving Qatar money? America. Who's giving, Amer who's giving Israel money? America. Right? And it, what is Israel doing? They're giving money to Hamas. So there's billions of dollars flowing to Hamas to put them on the map. And then somehow... America has the moral authority to send weapons and money to, and Israel has the moral authority to kill, use those weapons to kill 18-year-old and under kids for a group that they didn't put in there. I mean, imagine if you're a Ron Paul-type non-violence guy or something living in Gaza, how the hell would you be able to compete with American money and Israeli money going to Hamas? You say, I don't want Hamas. I want to support. I found a guy who's like a Ron Paul for Gaza. How are you going to get that guy on the ballot? How are you going to compete with Israel's billions for Hamas? So then, so you can't, you don't have the money, you don't have the wherewithal to be able to finance uh, a more nonviolent opposition to Hamas because you can't compete with Israel and America's money that's going to Hamas. So then that means you have the right to be murdered for Hamas's sins. How does that make any sense, Bob? It doesn't. <laughs> that make any sense. Yeah. 
It doesn't make a lick of sense, right? And I still want to know, when do we get to ask John Hagee if Jeffrey Epstein was standing for Israel? <laughs> Are we allowed to ask that? You know, he tells us we all have to stand for Israel. Mm-hmm. So was Jeffrey Epstein standing for Israel more than John Hagee? He did a lot of work on behalf of them, apparently, in America and whoever else. Was it standing for Israel to support Epstein Island, John Hagee? Was that an operation that God will bless? You know, so John Hagee says, do whatever Israel needs as a government. Mm-hmm. So John Hagee, I want John Hagee to answer this question. He, he contorts and mutates the passages left and right for whatever he does. But he says all the time, if you bless Israel, God will bless you. And so I want to know, was supporting Epstein Island operation, was that blessing Israel and will we be blessed by God because we went along with that, Jeffrey? John Hagee, if you talk like this, does it make it sound more holy? See, that's stupid. It's an act, man. The dude's a pro wrestling character. He's a gimmick. Like the Undertaker is a dark warlord. That's what John Hagee is to being a pastor. It's nothing. It's a character. Because what kind of a, a what kind of a conscience could a pastor have to lead so many people into such blind support for foreign policy adventurism that we don't need, right? David, do you have a, a position on? Because I've seen some uh, Christians, American Christians, who it's funny. I was about to say who are anti-war, and it's funny that I have to add that, like to show of the Christians who are anti-war. <laughs> Um, who are ex- explaining that they'll, the way they'll handle things like that is to say, oh, I'm not against, you know, Christians supporting Israel, but the people of Israel, you know, the, those, the the true um, seed of Abraham and such, it's not the current nation state of, of Israel, like meaning the, the the government that's over there right now doing these things. That's not what the Bible is telling Christians to support, even if you went along with that interpretation that, oh, yes, we're supposed to, as beyond just saying like, oh, no, you know, once Jesus came, he, you know, he grafted Gentiles in. And so we're all Israel in that sense. Do you, do you have a, a do you, like, do you have any thoughts on that one way or the other? What, what are you asking? Do I have thoughts about that theological question? Right. I'm saying some, okay. Sorry, I, I was unclear. One response for people who don't, think Christians are supposed to support what the Israeli government is doing right now in terms of dropping bombs on refugee camps. Uh, One response is to say that, no, Christians have no allegiance to Israel, you know, period. We're we're Christians and that's, you know, that's different covenant and blah, blah, blah. Others say, oh, yeah, I'm fine with people saying, you know, we should bless Israel and da-da-da-da. It's just the word Israel does not refer to the government over there or even to all the people who live in that region and and call themselves Jews. No, Israel is now a broader category that includes Gentiles, and, and you know they're they're all like of of Abraham now in that theological sense. So those are two slightly different ways of disputing the claim that oh yeah, we need to stand with Israel, meaning we got to be okay with these bombs. Yeah, I think that some uh, some people in the Reformed Church. Uh, you know, take a view that Christ is Israel. And then I think that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church also maintain that Christ is the Israel, right? So 
that would be the majority of Christians, uh, if you if you if you count Catholics and Orthodox and uh, some of the Protestants. I don't know a lot of the different Protestant sects, but of uh, that, I just remember I've I've seen some Reform folks. I know like you know some of the Anglicans, like uh, Bishop N.T. Wright. You know he mm-hmm. talks about how Jesus is the new Israel and so forth. So I think the majority of Christianity around the world. Uh, holds the position that uh, Jesus is is Israel, right, um, and inherits the uh, the promises of Abraham. Uh, there are some folks who believe in some kind of like double covenant, like there's two separate uh, ways to get to heaven or something, uh, or something. And then there's nuances. Some of them say it's not related to heaven. It's some kind of like double, I don't know how they square it, but a lot of that came from you know, Darby uh, from the 1800s, who was a um, Scottish minister, uh, and he and then he influenced uh, a guy named um, C.I. Schofield, who Cyrus Schofield, who did the Schofield Bible, mm-hmm. which was a commentary. It was a Bible with a commentary uh, that that really pushed in a lot of these ideas that became very uh, 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 dominant in Christian evangelicalism in America. But I think it's on the wane, you know. I think it's kind of a generational thing that a lot of the younger generation doesn't accept dispensationalism or other uh, similar interpretations like that. Uh, and I don't really want to go too far into that, uh, other than to say that even if, I mean, even if you are a dispensationalist, I, th- I think that's what you were saying. One of the positions was there, which is like you can you can bless Israel without going along with their government's policies, right? Is that what you're getting at? Like, right. Right, like that's the people, from Christians. Like it's not in the people's, and I think that's a fair argument. I mean, mm-hmm. the Christian Zionists that I met when I went to Israel, you know, they were telling me, uh, or not, excuse me, not the Christian Zionists, these were just Zionists. Zionists living, you know, Jews living in, in Jerusalem were telling me, we don't want America's involvement. We don't want American aid. We don't want any of that. And so if you're a true uh, advocate of Zionism in that way, then you might not want to have any government support uh, America's aid uh, to continue over there because uh, that's what those folks are saying in, in Jerusalem. And then there's so, but those folks that are saying that probably still, and I know the ones of the one particular guy I'm thinking about him, he's very supportive of what's going on in the campaign against Gaza right now, the way they're doing it. So then there's a, there's a kind of a, there's two Zionist, um, it kind of gets complicated here, but there's, I mean, you've got the Zionist approach uh, that is still against America's involvement in this conflict. And then you have this kind of a anti-war Christian Zionist approach that some could take where they could say, look, uh, I support Israel and its people. I don't support their government. So just like I can support Americans, and that's why I want to oppose America's government's policies for Obamacare or the Federal Reserve, uh, the same way I can stand with the people of Israel and oppose by opposing their government's policies, which are not going to be for their benefit. And I think that's a fair position to take for folks. And I think, you know, folks that want to take that position are, are at least being as, as uh, you know, ethically in alignment with Christ's calling within their paradigm of understanding, you know? Yes, uh, but yeah, indeed. most of the church doesn't accept that framework about a dual covenant right. thing. That's right. a new modern invention by recent Protestant evangelicals. 
okay. mostly okay. dominant in America. Yeah, yeah, that, which that's is why, I was by asking. the way, they yeah. tend to be more. They they tend to be more. Uh, the American Zionists, uh, Christian Zionists, tend to be sometimes be more bloodthirsty in their reaction to Palestinians than the actual folks in Israel. Yeah, right. I know. I, I have nuanced. seen yeah some interviews and things that, that that's probably because when that. you don't, it's like pro wrestling. If it's something far away or football, far far away, you know, if it's right on your doorstep, the carnage, you're a little bit more sensitive about what you're doing. You know what I mean? Right, right. And if you're far far away, it's like a virtual reality. It's it's really horrible. Well, well, David, I'm just looking at the clock here, so I think we need to wrap up. Do you want to take a few minutes here, just as final remarks to to drive home to to uh, the listeners about again, like the, the connection between well, what's over there? Was there anything in particular you think I should uh, clarify or expand upon, and that I missed, maybe? Well, I just I love this. You had as a standalone paragraph here. You said the late anthropologist Rene Girard said, "We did not invent our gods; we deified our victims." Right. Um, so can you maybe just, you know, wow, what, what is, that sounds profound. What does that mean? <laughs> it just means that, that the victim is, well, there's a lot of ways that you can take that, but one, one way is, uh, there's a lot there, but one is that the, um, you know, the gods of the past were actual projections of, of human violence that was actually being done to victims. And then they would justify it by saying, well, the gods you know, they stirred a spirit in us and allowed us to find the truth. And we found this little person among us and it was a little witch and we threw them, you know, they flew off of a cliff and flew into the sky. And every year we celebrate the rain that came the next day after we threw it. It's actually just a murder of a, of a woman who looked different. And uh, they tell that story over and over again in a way that, that exonerates them of the violence and says that it was the gods that did it. And, and then that's where you get this idea of deifying victims. Mm -hmm. So Zeus, if you look at the mountain that's historically known in Greece to be the origins of the Zeus god, they actually found the bones of a 15-year-old teenage boy. I mean, so there's Zeus. That's what Zeus really looks like in all of his glory. It's a 15-year-old kid left to die in the midst of a thunderstorm on the top of a mountain. That's really what the what Zeus is. But now Christianity demystifies for 2,000 years. Christianity has demystified mythological thinking that hides violence by projecting violence into the sky as God's doing it. Now, though, in the modern age, we we don't say it's God's telling us to kill. We say it's these abstract principles like the, uh, you know, the human rights or uh, democracy or, you know, uh, the, the world order or, you know, following the rules-based order or whatever these nomenclature is that we use to justify, oh, it's the liberation of our people. That's why I'm allowed to do these horrible things. No, you're not. You know, you're not, these, are, these are cheap. Uh, kind of vestiges, weakened vestiges of kind of like these are now abstract principles, general welfare, the will of the people, democracy, uh, liberation, uh, anti-colonialism. All these words are these big other, I can, I can kill this person by the power of raw or the power of anti-colonialism is what I invoke. And it's like, no, sorry, that doesn't right. cut it, you know? Right. And, and so these things don't cut it anymore and they will increasingly fail to cut it because now, because Christ died on the cross and he was revealed to be truly innocent and God stands on the side of innocent victims, now, in some sense, the victim is truly sacred 
And now we no longer are able to hide the killing of innocence by the power of God's. Now we're realizing that God, in his power, stands on the side of human innocence. And so that's where history is going to move. So we better get on, we better get on the right path because societies that don't learn this lesson are going to be steeped in absolute chaos. Because if you don't learn to renounce violence and renounce scapegoating innocence, that violence comes back into your community. And you see that happening all around even America today. Well, indeed. So on that somber note, I think we need to wrap up. Uh, folks, my guest this week has been David Gornowski. I'll put links uh, in the show notes page to uh, his World Not Daily article and where else, else you can find him. David, thanks so much for your uh, insights and commentary. Thank you. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>